people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. He said, Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The context of their passage today is a story that begins, uh, this particular scene of the story in this book begins in chapter 3 when a lame man is healed and the church leaders take it as an opportunity to preach the resurrection of Jesus, whom the leaders here at, their, at this temple had led a movement and persuaded the Romans to have Jesus killed only to have the tomb empty three days later and the church born uh, 
50 days after that, Christ having shown himself to be alive for 40 days before ascending to heaven. And now they're proclaiming this in the very temple where they had schemed to put Jesus and his ministry to death. And so at the end of chapter 3, these guys are captured, the preachers, and held in a cell overnight. And then they're brought into a court and commanded not to teach or preach Jesus anymore. Well, they continue because it's better to obey God than men, right? All authority comes from God, but when someone under God's authority gets out from under his authority, you better obey God and not that person that's gone off the tracks. And so uh, they continue to preach, so they arrest them again, and in the middle of the night, an angel comes and sets them free and says, go back to the temple and preach Jesus. So they do. So the next morning, these religious fuddy-duddies, these Leaders, they were actually part of the Jewish government system that Rome allowed to function to govern their internal affairs there in Israel, residing in Jerusalem. Uh, they send for these leaders, to these Christians, to uh, tell them again, uh, don't preach in his name. And lo and behold, the, the cell is empty. To their horror, they find them back in the temple preaching again. So they bring them back before them again for their court session. And this is where we begin, verse 26. The captain went with the officers and brought them, interrupted their preaching in the temple without violence. They did it gently, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. They didn't want there to be a riot. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest, the guy in charge, asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. May God give us that favor where we fill Granbury with the gospel, amen? And intend to bring this man's blood on us. Notice they, they're not saying Jesus' name. Did we command you not to teach in this name and you're trying to bring this man's blood on us? not wanting to say his name. This aversion to the name of Jesus is reflected in certain sects of, of Orthodox Judaism where they won't say the name of Jesus, they won't say Yeshua, they'll talk about that man. They'll talk about the, 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 Christian, uh, the Christian Messiah. So we see this reflected right here even in this early day. Now notice they're accusing them of trying to bring Jesus' blood on them when in Matthew 27... They led the way in the crowd, crying out, let his blood be on us and our children. When Pilate said, I don't want to be guilty of this man's blood because he's innocent. I find no fault in him. They said, let us carry the brunt of it. Let his blood be on us and our children. Now they're wanting to not have that. So Peter's response with the other apostles um, answered and said, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, he knows, they know they don't have long to speak, and what they say here is so inflammatory, it's going to get them killed or close to being killed. We ought to obey God rather than men. In other words, you guys aren't God. Well, that's offensive. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, that's offensive, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. That's offensive based on what they just told him. Him, God is exalted to his right hand, that's offensive, to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, they tried to destroy Jesus because he would announce people's forgiveness of sin. Your sins are forgiven you. How dare you do that? Only God can do that. Well, thank you for making the case for us. So they're proclaiming the forgiveness of sin through Jesus who's at the right hand of God who has all authority and he's prince and savior. And we are his witnesses to these things and so also is the Holy Spirit. Here's the last statement that's gonna make him mad. Whom God has given to those who obey him. Basically saying, you guys would have the Holy Spirit if you weren't so rebellious. When they heard this, they were furious, you think? They were furious and plotted to kill them. All right, that's it. These guys are out of here. Then one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, became very uh, well-known in Judaism. To this day, they honor this guy for his wisdom. He's the one who actually discipled Paul when he was a rabbi known as Saul. He was a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. He commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. All right, I want to say something, but I don't want these guys to hear it. Now, how did the apostles find out what they said? How did Luke find out what happened in this meeting? Well, we'll see later on in the book, on another Sunday, a great many of the priests became believers. So he puts them out for a little while, and he, he begins to speak to the other leaders, the high priest and the rest of them. Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. Be careful. And then he uses reasoning. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. Okay? Example number one. Here's example number two. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, in the days when uh, the Romans were taxing us and registering us to be taxed. And this guy drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So here's two parallels he's drawing. Leaders that created a following, who were killed, and their guys scattered. What is he implying? He's implying, all right, here's Jesus, the leader. He had a following. We've killed him. This thing is going to scatter if God's not in it. That's what he's saying. And now I say to you, verse 38, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. They agreed with them, so they're not going to kill them. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, you know, the video just kind of scammed through that, and they flogged them and let them go. Now, this was a beating. They skinned them alive, man. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, some look at what uh, Gamaliel said and are amazed at how shrewd he is, how smart he is, how persuasive he is, and they think there's some eternal truth in this. Even some in the charismatic realm have used this story to defend some bizarre thing that's happening in the church world. 
If God's in it, it's going to last. If it's not, it'll go away. Well, if that logic holds true, then why is there Islam with us to this day? Because it began with a small people, small group. It's grown into millions and causing the problem. The, pro- the radical Islam is causing great problems in the world. Why do we have cults with us today? If they started with a small group of people, if God's not in it, it'll come to nothing. Ultimately, in view of eternity, everything that's not of God will cease to exist. But that doesn't mean to just let nonsense by without correction. To not let, um, to, to allow false teaching to go forth without pointing it out. Well, if God's in it, we better not fight it. But if he's not, it won't come to nothing. No, a cult can be beginning. And you could be part of the solution to stop stopping something that's a lot of nonsense. Even the examples he's sharing there were true for the moment, but they didn't hold true. In 44 AD, according to Josephus, a man named Thutis, another guy with the same name, raises up and, and creates a, a disturbance with his group of people. And then Judas of Galilee, yeah, it looked like his people were dispersed, but they went underground. They became the zealots. Even Simon Zelotus, Simon the Zealot, one of the 12, had been part of that group. Why? Because Judas of Galilee had kids. He had descendants. And they had a habit. If they could find a Roman by himself, he was dead. So... We think of Romans all being all that. Yeah, they were when they were together, but not by themselves because of these guys, uh, followers of this man, ultimately of this man. So Gamaliel's reasoning bought the apostles' time, but it didn't hold true. It's not long till they start killing Christians. So they beat them, and they let them go after commanding them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Verse 41 So they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They weren't whining. They weren't saying, you know, I'm not having my best life now. You know, I've been doing those three tips for success, and I'm not feeling very successful right now. No, they, they had been warned by Jesus. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, after the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men will revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. Rejoice, for great is your reward, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, If they're going to persecute me, they are going to persecute you. In John 16, he said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So having heard the truth, they were able to rejoice. Why are there so many whining Christians in the world? They've not really heard the truth. They've been taught something that's not the whole picture. In the realm of eternity, you're going to have your best life. It's really, the truth is, in view of eternity, it's your best life later. It's abundant life now, but there can be hardships along the way. That is the truth, especially if you're going to serve God and his purposes. It's the truth. 
well, I'm not going to buy this tape. That's true. This, this kind of truth doesn't sell. Verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. When a series going through the book of Acts, verse by verse, looking at how the early church continued what Jesus had begun, knowing that it only has 28 chapters, it doesn't have a conclusion, Paul's in a house teaching folks and the book is over. It's not over. The church is still here. The church is still moving through the earth. The church is still growing around the world. And we are living in the Acts 29 generation, probably 39 by now. What kind of church are we? Are we anything like this church? This is, this is something we need to look at. It could be called the book of actions or the book of activities history of the early church, but it's not history in the sense this happened and it's over. No, it happened and it's still happening today, the continuation of Christ's ministry. I'd like to speak to you today about priorities, focusing on the last verse of chapter 5. It says, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Priorities are right here for church life. For Christian living, the priorities are here. You could look at it in the reverse. Jesus is the Christ. That's the foundation of it all, is it not? In Matthew 16, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the anointed one. You're the Messiah. Jesus said, right, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church on who Jesus is. And that is something we are to preach and never stop preaching. That is something that segues into teaching because the Messiah not only saves, but he told us how to live. And we're to be taught that and to teach that and to not stop that. And this should be at home and in the temple, private and in public, and part of our daily life. Do you see that? Jesus is the Christ, preaching, teaching, not ceasing, every house in the temple daily. These are priorities. The word priority basically, as I'm defining it today, means something given or meriting attention before competing alternatives. Maybe your hobby is a priority in your life, and then comes along a competing alternative. Your first child is born. Whoop, that'll turn your hobby on its head, won't it? Time and money. <laughs> you, there becomes to be, there needs to be a shift Maybe there's not because maybe you're like this guy. He had an accident, run his car into the lake. He's rescuing his golf clubs and says, here, take these. I'm going back for my wife. There may be a husband like that here today or a wife like that here today that, that your, your spouse is an option and not a priority. May the Lord help you to correct that. Priorities are what govern our lives. They're like our compass. They're, they're like what points to what's north for us. The direction you're going is based on your priorities. It just is. Even if they're wrong priorities, they're your priorities, and they will govern your life, and you will reap the consequences. Miles Monroe said, our life is the sum total of all the decisions we make every day, and those decisions are determined by our priorities. 
Author Stephen Covey said, the key is not to prioritize what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. We know what needs to be a priority in our life, but many times other things keep those things from being a priority. Why? Because those other things somehow are a priority. And so rather than working, he kind of turns the logic on its head, rather than working to prioritize your schedule, why not schedule your priorities? Put God there at the top of the page. We see seven priorities of the church in this text, this little verse, Acts 5.42. One is New Testament Christian living involves preaching the good news about Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the one who frees us from the bondage and guilt for our sin. He's the one that enables us to forgive those who've hurt us. He's the one that enables us to rejoice when we suffer. He is our Lord. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And he's coming back again. This is something we are to preach with our lives and with our mouth everywhere you go. Maybe you don't have a microphone in your hand or on your head, but you do with your life. Your life is preaching something. The people that know you, what sermon are they getting from you? Are you as shook up as they are about the economy? Or do you have a hope of a city whose builder and maker is God? For here we have no continuing city. Jesus said in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news to every creature. The euangelos, this is evangelism, preaching the good news. New Testament Christian living includes learning and teaching his truth. It's about hearing the word and being hearing enough and learning enough to be able to teach someone else. Those who are taught should be able to teach others. Someone comes to you with a question. They're needing comfort. Are you able to minister to them? Has the Lord comforted you? Have you learned some things along the way? This is a priority. This is important. This is New Testament Christian living. When you do that, don't look, don't look down on it. Well, I don't have a platform. Oh, you do. Your life is a platform. Jesus said in John 8, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you it starts with abiding in the word it starts with being taught it starts with learning and hiding his word in our heart that we may not sin against him his word becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway is the word of god a governing principle in your life or is it just an option is it just a book that you get out when christians come over and put on the coffee table after you wipe the dust off of it or is it something that's part of your daily life? We need this in our life, these priorities, to become part of our culture, part of our life, second nature. With fellowship, everybody needs fellowship. Breaking of bread, everybody eats. And prayers, everybody prays. So make prayer part of your lifestyle. When you fellowship with someone, someone has a need, don't wait till you go to church to pray. Don't wait till the ministry team comes forward, which we will do at the end of this service. But pray then. God will use your prayers. Well, that'll look weird. Well, actually, it's weird not for Christians to not pray. 
The early church from day one continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. It was part of their culture. Such priorities must govern our daily routines. If you're just a Sunday morning Christian, you're missing out. He is Lord of our life. That minimizing, where's that going to stop? Sunday morning Christianity lends itself to once a quarter Christianity. Where's that going? That's going right down the slope to Christmas and Easter. (laughs) Acts 2 continues that, that the early church continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. There's the temple and the house, public and private. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is a fun thing. This is a good thing. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This is a key to church growth when when our Christianity becomes part of our daily life and prayer is included in our fellowship and in our breaking of bread and we're not just keeping things to ourselves. It's transforming and it will transform the lives of others as well as your own. Well, I know that, but one day I'll, you know, I'll, you know, when I get these kids raised, then I'm going to really step up to the plate and serve Jesus. You know what? Someday never comes. Somebody said, there are seven days in the week and someday isn't one of them. This lifestyle should be both public and private. Some people are so private with their faith, they never tell anybody about Jesus. We had a president like that. Well, my faith is very private between me and God, and I'm not going to tell others about it. Well, that's, that, that, that's good, but not good. I doubt that it's really private. You're just hiding the fact that there's not much depth there. And other people, their faith is just public. In private, you wouldn't know they're a Christian. But boy, are they in church every week. Paul told the church in Ephesus, their leaders, when he came through the region to visit on his way out of the region, the elders of the church came to visit them, and he, he offers what's called the 2020 principle. He, he reminded them of how he planted that church. He said, I kept back nothing that was helpful and proclaimed it to you. So there's preaching and taught you. There's teaching publicly and from house to house, public and private. Is there any teaching going on in your home? Is there any learning going on in your home? We're talking about more than forwarding a good meme on Facebook. We're talking about ministering to somebody that needs words of life in their life. Living like this, prepares us all for leadership. Whether you like it or not, you are a leader. And where are you going if others follow you? Well, I can't go to Bible school. I've already started my family. Well, don't worry about that. You're in Bible school right now. I went to Bible school for four years, and I'm telling you, all the stuff I learned that I needed in pastoring, they didn't teach it. It appears that if pastoring is is not your cup of tea, you can get a job teaching Bible school. (laughs) Not downing Bible schools. 
I love Bible schools. It's good, but there's some things that are left out that you learn by experience. You learn from following Jesus. So I think a lot of people in this room are a whole lot further along than you think you are. You know some stuff. Stop keeping it to yourself. In Hebrews, the writer, chapter 5, told the readers, by this time you ought to be teachers. You know, you guys have been at this for several years now. You ought to be teachers by now. But you guys need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Somehow you've missed kindergarten, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. Are you reading the Word for yourself? Are you following teachings that really help you? Or is it just fluff, stuff that makes you good? Go beyond the promise box devotional and get into something that can really help you live when times are hard. This is the blessing of hard times. It'll make you dig in to the Word to build your faith up so you can make a stand when the enemy wants to knock you down. And assembling together for these purposes must not stop. He goes on and tells the, the Hebrews, the readers of his book, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking, can we say not? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, as the manner of some is. Or as is the manner of some. Some folks neglect forsaking with other believers. But exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Do you realize North Korea and Iran are allies? And China is their connection? I mean, we could be facing some tough stuff. You better get a hold of God's word for you and begin to grow spiritually for you because you may need the encouragement yourself. Not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, I have to bring up this truth. I did, the first service didn't get this. <laughs> Who would agree some Christians are annoying? You know why? I'll show you the verse. 1 Corinthians 1. Don't turn there now. It describes the citizens of the kingdom that are called to serve the Lord, those of us who are called in the kingdom, those that have answered the Lord's call. He says, not many, doesn't say not any, thank goodness, not many noble, not many strong, and not many wise are called. It's talking about us. Not many of us are noble, not many of us are strong, not many of us are wise. Why? Because God wants to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the world. So that's us. So if you find other people annoying, look in the mirror. Now thank God he has nobleness that he's imparting to us through his word and his spirit. He has strength that he's bringing to us through his revelation and encounters with his presence. And he has wisdom that's coming to us as he renews our mind. But I don't know about you, he's not done with me yet. So I need you in my life. We need each other in our life. I love raising my children in a congregational culture. 
because when my children went through that phase in teenagers where they thought mom and dad were whacked, we had plenty of other whacked people that they didn't think were whacked that could be a positive influence in their life. All right, moving right along, back to the sermon. We could get lost there. Talking about priorities, preaching the good news about Jesus, learning and teaching his truths, letting this become of our part of our culture, including fellowship, eating together and praying, uh, making these priorities our daily routine, letting it be public and private, knowing that we're all being prepared for leaders. Some people will follow our lives and close their Bibles, and others will follow our lives and open them. You're destined for leadership. You probably already are leading and don't know it. And assembling together to encourage one another to fulfill these purposes must never stop. Ongoing part of our Christianity. If God were here today and we had a chalkboard, what would he write on it? Well, in light of the sermon, he might write these words. I am not an option. I am my priority. He's your creator. He made you for his purposes. He wants to be the center of your life. When we talk about priorities, sometimes we relate to them like they're a destination somewhere. I'll get my priorities right someday. I'll get it right someday. Someday. There we go. There's no someday in the seven days of a week. You might think of priorities like I thought of them as a list. Number one is God. Number two is my wife. Number three is my children. Number four, five, six, and always to get them right. And it seems that I'm tormented by the other, if I make a list of top 10 priorities, I'm tormented by nine of them that I'm not fulfilling when I'm trying to fulfill one of them. There's the Pareto Principle. Who's heard of the Pareto Principle? It basically, uh, an Italian economist noticed that 20% of his, of the peas in his garden uh, had 80% of his produce. The pea plants generated 20, 80% of his deal. And he learned that this was kind of a principle. In a, in a large company, 80% of the work often is done by 20% of the people. It works with volunteer organizations. It works with churches too. 20% of the, of the makeup of a congregation do 80% of the ministry. John Maxwell says, if you make a list of your top 10 priorities and focus on the first two, the others will fall into place. My pastor Olin does that. Man, he's all about worship. Every day starts with worship in the word, worship in the word, and everything else in his life falls into place and in order. But I think... For me, what really helped me was understanding priorities as being the spokes in a wheel. Priorities are like a bicycle wheel with spokes. And if you have all the right spokes in the right place and you begin to move through life, you'll be balanced and you fulfill all your priorities. Make sure there's the God spoke, or you could say God is the hub to everything. Make sure there's the wife spoke, the children spoke, and the ministry spoke, and the job spoke, and the, all these spokes. And, and as you keep them in their place and not lose them. As you move through life, you'll find yourself fulfilling your priorities. In the early days of my ministry, my list of priorities would torment me. 
I'd be fishing with my son. I'd be thinking, man, I'm not ready for Sunday. Or I'd be getting ready for Sunday. Oh, I need to spend time with my kids. Or you could apply to anything in life like that. What you're missing out on when you should be doing this. It's important to realize what dominates your life is your priorities and to just keep the right priorities in the right place and make them part of your daily routine. Well, I hate routines. Routines are boring. Well, you have one. Do you eat every day? Do you check your Facebook every day? That's a routine. Maybe your part of routine is having an adventure. You like to wake up in a new world every day and plan nothing. That's a priority for you. But that in itself can lead to great stress because you always have a sense of not being prepared for what's coming your way. So with priorities in our life being like the spokes in a wheel, we move through life, and if I'm playing catch with my kids, I'm playing catch for God. If I'm praying and not spending time with my wife, I'm praying for my wife. If I'm spending time with my wife, I'm spending time with my wife for my kids. Does that make sense? Priorities. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for every person here. I pray that we would understand we all have priorities. And we just need to schedule the right ones so that the wrong ones don't dominate our lives. In Jesus' name, show us, Lord, what to add to our priorities and what to remove. What spokes to put in our wheel that are missing and what spokes to remove that are unnecessary. I pray, Lord, this word would take stress off of your people and bring order into all of our lives in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for those whose uh, relationship spoke is crooked, it's been attacked, it's been bent by the enemy or by circumstances. I pray, Lord, you'd straighten it out, that you would help us, Lord, to all have healthy relationships. At the same time, Lord, I pray that you would be the hub and sender of everything we do. Lord, may it be for your glory. Help us to be balanced people. In Jesus' name. There's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ who do not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It's all about pursuing the will of the Holy Spirit. You do that, things will fall into place. If you don't remember anything else I'm saying, Romans 8.1 lines it all up with verse 2 as well. Can we stand? I'm going to call the prayer team forward, and if you'd like to receive prayer about anything, don't leave this place without receiving prayer.